This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We've got one self-proclaimed billionaire in the White House already, and at least two others who now say they might like the job, Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg. They've all, of course, been very successful in business, more successful than almost any other American. But why do they think that translates to the work of the presidency? Or do the small-D Democratic imperatives that envelop a job like the presidency? Just yesterday on the show, we were talking about the 2020 presidential race and who people hope will join the contest. And a caller joined us and said this. I'd like to see a guy like Bill Gates, but it's, who knows if he'd have a chance. <laughs> Bill Gates, another billionaire who some people say, ah, maybe he would be a good president. So billionaires are clearly on our minds when we think of the people who could lead the country. But why is that? And is it a little misguided? Journalist and author Anand Girdas has written a book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It challenges the notion that the wealthy among us are even interested in better outcomes for the rest of us. It's really just all about them, he says. And on Gerardas, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So you were recently on MSNBC with uh, Howard Schultz. Uh, what is his or other billionaires' fascination with the presidency or with power at that level? You know, this is what we are witnessing now and what you kind of brilliantly captured in that intro is um, kind of the third stage of a, of a three-stage takeover of American life. Uh, you know, stage one, which I think everybody listening in the Detroit area will understand very well, is that from the 70s onward, you really had this kind of upward um, redistribution of opportunity in American life where middle class, middle class got kind of punished, the working class got punished, and more and more resources flowed to the top. People still kept making their cars, kept making auto parts, kept making uh, ball bearings, kept making all the things people make, but there were fewer and fewer jobs to go around, and more and more of those profits went up to the top, and we had fabulous growth for, for billionaires and investors. Well, then you had you know the, the kind of political movement of the Reagan Revolution and the Thatcher Revolution in Britain, et cetera, saying no government, you know, Make everything smaller taxes. Let's cut those taxes. Let's cut those regulations. Well, that was kind of stage one. That started to generate a tremendous amount of pain, as I don't need to tell anybody in Detroit. The government was doing less. People's lives were, people were making less money. People had fewer opportunities. The billionaires were doing better. So the billionaires have started to step in and, and kind of suggest, well, we are actually going to fix these problems. We recognize there's problems. So you started to see Bill Gates giving back billions of dollars and, you know, doing genuine good, but also very much trying to get ahead of, a, of, a, of, of widening public anger. You've got Mark Zuckerberg compromising our democracy, uh, his platform fomenting ethnic violence around the world, and he's now, I'm going to give back and eradicate diseases, even though his company is in many ways a plague. And the final stage of this, I think, is billionaires deciding that having, having kind of uh, pillaged the economy, um, having engaged in these kind of forms of changing the world to, to, to basically preserve their own power and privileges and, and, and redefine how we think about change. They've now decided they want the presidency itself. Um, and, uh, and I just want to say, you know, America needs billionaires to run for president. Um, 
the way forest fires need gasoline, the way, the way, the way floods need rain. Uh, we're not going to solve the problems we have by doubling down on, on the people and things that, that cause them. So, so one of the, the conceits behind these runs for the presidency uh, that we hear a lot is, look, uh, I was successful in business and I was more successful than just about anybody else. And there are lessons from that success. There are things that I know how to do or understand that could also apply to running the country. What's wrong with that argument from your standpoint? You're, you're absolutely right that this is a, a belief that has spread widely in our time. It's, it's in, a, in, every, in every age, there's kind of, every age has its own widely disseminated BS. And I would argue the idea you just said is one of the, is one of the most widely agreed, kind of casually embraced pieces of BS that we share in common. Um, and you see it in the, in the Trump candidacy, but you also see it in in, in Bloomberg and, and, and Schultz and others, and you see it more generally. You see, even see it in, in, the, in you know, uh, the charter school movement, where people who happen to make money you know, selling some widget and just selling a lot of them now are suddenly authorities on what kind of schools we should have, the way you know, Betsy DeVos was in western Michigan uh, before she, before she you know, got, got kind of promoted upward mm-hmm. um, for... for you know, not necessarily understanding education. And so you have this extraordinary idea. And, and, and the problem with the idea is that it's not true. Um, it's not true in the sense that, first of all, being good at business is, is an arbitrary skill. I mean, being good at making pizza is, is also an important skill. Being a teacher is also a great skill. Being a pilot and being able to land that baby is a pretty good skill. Being a radio host, Stephen, is an important skill. I have never seen any evidence anywhere that the particular skill of running a business, which is a particular skill, um, is, any, is any particularly great preparation. But more importantly, I actually think it's a hindrance, because a lot of what a CEO is being about, as anybody listening to this who has ever worked for one can attest, it, a lot of it is actually about dehumanizing. A lot of it is about doing what most normal people would struggle to do, which is to fire 30,000 people to shave costs a little bit, to shift your plant to a dynamic scheduling system, which might save you 5% on your wage bill, but would take away all the predictability out of your workers' lives, and your workers now have to send their kids to daycare at 3 in the morning because the schedule shifts Sunday night before the Monday shift. It takes a special human being to be able to do that, to save 5% and not care about the human consequences. Hmm. So I believe CEOs are not random people. I believe they're people often who have a special ability to pursue what's good for the bottom line at the expense of human beings. And, and that, in many ways, makes them spectacularly unqualified to be president, because being president is fundamentally about feeling deep in your bones um, what it's like to be all kinds of different people in the country that you represent, the people you, people you won, the people you didn't win. And I think when you, and the third problem is CEOs have a lot of interest. Rich people in general have a lot of interests, right? Um, you and me, I imagine, we have, we have modest interests. We, we don't want our home to go away. Um, you know, you don't want there to be too many people named Stephen, I guess. But, but, but we don't have that many interests to protect. When you have billions of dollars, you have huge interests to protect. And what rich people invariably do when they enter political life is that they use their platform, our democracy, to essentially rep 
their own interests, to fight for their own interests. And you see it as soon as Schultz got in the race, no sooner did he join than he had shot down tax proposals that would cost people like him money, that he shot down health care proposals that would help everybody listening to this broadcast but would cost people like him money. They use running. They use the, the, the aura of public service to actually just defend their own parochial interests. Mm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, uh, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Anand Giridas. He is a journalist and the author of a book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. We are talking about billionaires and their fascination uh, with the presidency. We have a self proclaimed billionaire, Donald Trump, uh, in the presidency now. He ran saying that his uh, business success and real estate success was one of the things that qualified him for the presidency. We also have a couple other billionaires who have said, hey, I'd like to take a shot at that, and it's my business success that qualifies me for the job. But is this uh, the kind of thing that makes any sense? Is this uh, true that uh, that tremendous business success is the key to the kind of leadership you need in the Oval Office, or are we kind of uh, chasing a phantom there, uh, trying to, to to sort of? Uh, put a very easy solution in place for very complex problems that we have in this country. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Does it matter to you how wealthy the president of the United States is? Does being a billionaire or otherwise really wealthy tell you something about a candidate that matters to you? And why do you think President Trump appealed to so many working class or impoverished Americans, uh, given his uh, campaign that, that highlighted his own success? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or if you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Nancy on Facebook says they're attracted to the Oval Office because they're attracted to power. How are they unfit to lead? Because only 1% of us are wealthy. They're fit to lead that 1%, but unfit to lead the 99%. Uh, Christine on Twitter says, having money doesn't mean someone is smart or qualified for public service. See our current president. Tammy on Twitter says, she's skeptical of billionaires who run for president. Of course, I'm skeptical of everyone, she says. Well, uh, that might be healthy skepticism, Nancy, uh, but, uh, uh, or Tammy, but uh, (laughs) I'm not sure we should be automatically skeptical of everyone. Chris on Twitter says, three words. Conflict of interest. Uh, before we get to the phones, uh, Anand, and we've got a lot of people already lined up here, um, I, I want to talk about the history of they the They obviously presidency. know that I, I lived four years in Michigan. Yeah, that's, that's right. You him. went to the University of Michigan, also my alma mater. <laughs> um, uh, but before we do that, I, I want to talk about the history of the presidency and wealth. Uh, Donald Trump is the wealthiest person to ever be elected president uh, because he's a billionaire. Maybe. Uh, maybe, right. I mean, uh, you know, he says these things and who knows how, how much money he's really worth. Uh, but uh, he's not the only extremely wealthy person to, to hold that job. And in fact, uh, many of the most successful presidents have been quite wealthy. John Kennedy, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington uh, was worth half a billion dollars, uh, according uh, to, to to some measures. Um, is it is it that 
I mean, your point is that that uh, being a billionaire doesn't necessarily qualify you to be the president. I guess the question is, does it disqualify you? In other words, is it an automatic sign that somebody is unfit for the presidency uh, that they've that they've had this kind of success? And and given our history of electing people who've had you know tremendous private uh, private wealth, uh, how do you how do you square that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the other day, I, I'll be honest with you, the, you know, a couple few months ago, um, I, I put forward my answer to that question, and I, I said, look, given the moment we're in, given the over-influence of plutocrats in American public life, given what has happened to communities um, like the one you serve in many ways because of what plutocrats have done, I said, look, I, I, I think you know, not being a billionaire is a, is a pre-qualification for, for running this time around. And a lot of people pushed back online and said, look, FDR was from, you know, quite Great wealthy, wealth. yes, and did more for poor people and, and really changed the infrastructure of this country to serve poor people and working people than maybe anybody else. And that gave me pause. You know, it was one of those rare moments where you actually learn something from Twitter. And, you know, and I, and I knew that history, but I hadn't thought about it that way. And so I would say, look, I, I don't think there should be automatic disqualifiers, um, any more than I think wealth should be an automatic qualifier. But I do think we should look with skepticism. I actually agree with that caller who said you should be skeptical of everybody, particularly people who want to run <laughs> your world. Um, but I think we should be particularly skeptical of those who are wealthy because, A, the essence of being wealthy, and I, I put my book, spent the last few years really reporting on these people in their world. And I, I came to understand the psychology of it and their experience of the world. It is a very insulated world, a world of bubbles, a world of private air terminals and private jets and private home theaters um, and private everything that actually gives them very little information about what's going on in the society and how other people really see them. And that is dangerous. Mm. Um, and, and also because not that there's anything immoral about individual wealthy people, but that when our society over the last 30, 40 years has given wealthy people a million votes each, while you and I were just having our one person, one vote uh, every couple of years, um, it seems to me that finding new opportunities to give wealthy people even more influence in American life is just the wrong priority. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about wealth and the presidency with Anand Giridas. Uh, we're also going to get to the calls. Rhonda in Ypsilanti, Glenn in Detroit, Alex in Gross Point, Peter in Bloomfield Hills. We will get to you next. Also, don't forget, uh, if you have to miss any of the show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation here. You can always go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to Detroit Today and take us with you, and then listen whenever you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Anand Girdadas. He is a journalist and author of a book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. We're talking about the idea that billionaires believe they can help change the world from the Oval Office, that uh, their wealth, their accumulation of wealth, 
is somehow a qualifier to be president of the United States. We have one of those people in the Oval Office right now, several others who are lining up saying they want to take a shot at it. We want to know what you think about it. Do you think that kind of wealth uh, is compatible with the work that comes with being president of the United States? Or do you think it's at odds with the kinds of things we want a president to be able to understand or relate to? Uh, let's go to Rhonda in Ypsilanti to start off the calls. Rhonda, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning to your guests. I'm so excited and glad to hear this conversation happening. I think that one of the things that he brought out about what it takes to run a business um, I never really thought about that before, um, but it, it really is very true. You you do have to be able to, like, kind of cut your emotions off from the hardships of other people when you're making bottom-line decisions for a business. And the, the, the reality is, is that a country is not a business. Our, the, the purpose of a business is to profit. The purpose of a country is to exist for the people. And so, you know, when you when you say, you know, does being a billionaire automatically disqualify you, it may not disqualify you, but we certainly have to look at what that person's business practices have been. So we know there's a history of Donald Trump cheating small small contractors, having them do the work and then not paying them. So he's laid a foundation of this kind of shady practice throughout his business life. And so now we have this person in the White House. And so, you know, I just think that it it, it, it does bear real scrutiny and some real critical thinking. Hmm. Uh, Rhonda, really, I really appreciate the call and, and the thoughts there. Um, uh, Anand, uh, one question I always have about this is, so, so if you take the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency, it really focused on people who are struggling and, and people right here in Michigan, uh, in, in places like Macomb County, which voted twice for Barack Obama and then voted uh, in 2016 for Donald Trump, are full of people who need more opportunity, who need uh, more support. And yet they were attracted to Donald Trump's message. And, and not just his message, I think. They were attracted to the idea of Donald Trump. They were attracted to the idea that this was uh, a, a smart guy who who took an advantage uh, that he had, you know, he, he inherits money, but then he builds it into something bigger. Um, why is it that that message sells so strongly with the American people? What is it about uh, billionaires like Donald Trump that's attractive to people who work in auto plants, for instance? Look, I, I think we have to be real, <coughs> real here. He, he did, I will say, I think he did a very good job of speaking to the deep place in people that's not their brain, but that's their heart that feels scared, that feels, you know, I often describe his coalition as a coalition of people who felt mocked by the future. And there are a lot of different ways you can feel mocked by the future. And the kind of inequality, the kind of, um, you know, the feeling that social mobility doesn't work, those kind of economic things are, are part of that feeling. But I think you can't talk about why he won Macomb County or various other places without talking about race and whiteness and mm -hmm. the exploitation of cultural resentment. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people were sold was the idea that their country changing was something that he, Donald Trump, was somehow going to magically reverse. And using that kind of language around again um, to basically pretend that he was going to be able to arrest um, the 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 
you know, the new multicultural America from emerging. Um, I want to go back to something your caller said, because I think it's so important. And I want to get into the weeds for one second about something that I think will resonate with, with a lot of folks in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things for this book, I, it's called Winners Take All, and it was really an attempt to go into that world of the winners and understand, not just throw rocks at them, but actually understand how they think. <laughs> and, I, and, I spent, and I tried to get confessions out of them. I'm, I'm not a priest but I'm good at getting confessions out of people. And one of the people who I got to really talk and reflect out loud was a business school professor, Harvard business school professor named Michael Porter, who is really one of the deans of the kind of MBA world, right? And chances are, you know, your business that you may, whatever business you may have worked in, chances are it was affected by things Michael, frameworks that Michael Porter came up with, books he wrote, the five forces he came up with, competitive advantage, a concept he coined. Um, there's almost no business in America that's been unaffected by his ideas. And this is a guy who's a believer. He still teaches at Harvard Business School. And we sat down and I said, you know, we need to talk about what business did wrong. Because for the last 30 or 40 years, business has prospered, while communities like those all around Detroit and all around this country didn't. And people are angry and people are feeling shut out. And that's, it's just, that can't be what you intended. Hmm. And, and, and what Porter explained, and it was really eloquent because it was coming from an insider. He said, look, the business revolution overshot, right? And he pointed to three things, three kind of currents that I think have hit the area where, that you serve very hard, optimization, globalization, and financialization. Hmm. Very quickly, optimization was this kind of view that you could have these analysts and consultants and spreadsheet people go into any business and do each little piece of what they do better. You know, buy this screw from China instead of locally. You know, make this fa- – actually do three fewer workers for this line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, optimization sounds great, but it led to a world in which workers had no stability. People were paid as little as possible. Taxes were avoided. Globalization, this idea that you should just do everything in the cheapest possible place – which, again, sounds great at the beginning, but you end up with no companies loyal to any communities mm-hmm. and a lot of people unable to cobble together a life and a career. Mm-hmm. And finally, financialization. These companies used to be run by owners who, who expected a return, but were also citizens of their community and stewards of their community, and, and you knew them and maybe your kid played ball with them. And now your local plant is owned by a hedge fund, which is in turn owned by a Korean shipping company, which is in turn owned by, you know, a Dutch accounting firm, which is in turn owned by a mysterious billionaire, you know, <laughs> living in Cuba. And, you know, the only one maybe. And, and, and I think those three things, uh, Michael Porter said to me, it, we overshot. We, we cleaned business up, we made it better, but we overshot. And we ended up, frankly, screwing people on the road to making business more successful. And I, I just wanted to talk about that because I think it's very important to understand why there's a gut feeling that I think many people have that the very people who prosecuted that business revolution and perhaps led to many of your listeners not having the stability in their lives that they used to have or their parents used to have, sure. the idea that those people are now our salvation from the problem they caused is laughable. The idea that arsonists can now reinvent themselves as firefighters um, is an idea we should we should push back against with ferocity. Hmm. 
Uh, my guest is Anand Girdadas. He is a journalist and author of the book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Uh, we're talking about billionaires and the presidency, the attraction to the presidency for billionaires, and our attraction to the idea that they might be the right ones to solve our problems. As always, the number on the phones, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Ashley on Twitter says, to me, wealth neither qualifies nor disqualifies a presidential candidate. It's more about the capacity and volition to represent and serve every American. Still, I've yet to see such a wealthy candidate. Damien on Facebook uh, says, uh, with all the data we have at our disposal, it is insane that people still think we live in any sort of meritocracy. Eric on Twitter says, businesses are not democracies. CEOs, billionaire or not, don't have co-equal centers of power that they have to negotiate with. All great comments there. Let's get back to the phones. Uh, uh, Glenn in Detroit. Glenn, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, just, I guess I'm reiterating one of your Twitter uh, comments. Um, all business leaders are dictators. They decide exactly what's going to be done. They make the decision. They decide who makes the decision. There's a single point of power. That's not the way the United States runs. Hmm. Our president is not a dictator. You can see that Trump is having difficulty with that because he thinks he is a dictator. He has been a dictator his whole life. But he cannot operate as a dictator. He's tried to very hard, and we've been fighting back against that ever since he's been in the office. The president needs to be able to get coalitions together. He needs to be able to work with the House and the Senate to move things together, move things forward and make uh, make progress. Yeah. Uh, But the other thing I want to bring up, uh I'm I'm really interested in what your guest just talked about and uh, uh, feedback he got about what happened with business and how business grew in those three areas. My real question is. How are we going to recover from that? Hmm. That's what I want to know. Right. How are we going to recover from that mistake? How are we going to move from where we are today to a world and a government that is for the people? Uh, that's Glenn, what the government is about. Thank it's a great you. question. Thanks uh, very much, Glenn. Uh, Anand, that's, that's uh, a great question for you. So you've got this consolidation of, of wealth in, in a very few people, a number of people. Uh, we are headed toward uh, that direction really fast and away from uh, a more equitable distribution of of capital in our in our country. How how do you how do you fix that? Uh, do you do it through the tax code? Do you do it through uh, some more radical measure that we haven't thought of yet? You know, um, I, I I hear the the. The, in a way, the desperation in Glenn's voice, like, how do we deal with something so big? And I just want to say, as big as this problem is, there is something we have, a tool we have, that is absolutely big enough to address problems on this scale pretty fast, and that's called government. Mm-hmm. Okay? And we have to remember that our country has, our culture has been the site of a war on government for 30, 40 years. So even those of us who maybe a little bit more believe in government have passively, like secondhand smoke, absorbed this idea that kind of government is bad, can't do anything, is inefficient, bloated. But actually, government is very good at solving the kind of problems we talked about. If you start taxing rich people at much higher rates, the kinds of rates where you say your $10 million and above will be 70% the way 
Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has proposed. If you start talking about the kind of wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren has proposed, which is let's leave everybody, I imagine, 99% of people listening to this alone, but if you make more than you know, $50 million, $100 million, a billion dollars, we're going to tax 2 or 3% of your wealth. If you start having health care policy for everybody so that people are actually, your listeners are not spending time around the proverbial kitchen table staring at those damn medical bills, they're actually helping their kids with their homework and thinking of businesses they want to start. Um, if you actually have the kind of public schooling where you don't get to go to a good school because you live in West Bloomfield instead of downtown Detroit, um, we actually have good public schools for everybody, and your zip code isn't the determinant uh, of, of the quality of your school. If we start to do those things, which are, which are things that many other countries already do, which are things that we've done uh, in some cases in, in, our, in our own past, sure. you, will in, you will very quickly see very different results. And there are many, many graphs and data to show this. And one simple explanation. Today, the richest 1% corner about 25% of America's income. In the middle of the 20th century, it was about half that, hmm. right? That is a very big difference in American life. That's one data point I could give you. There are many, many others. That's a really, those are two different countries, yeah. right? And that is all policy. And so I, what I would urge everybody listening to this is we've got to make government sexy again. We've got to fight back against the idea that it's bloated and, and inefficient and incapable. The whole government is not the DMV. Government <laughs> is why you can go out to eat and not get sick. Government is educated 99% of the people in your life. Government is their, invented the technology behind the internet and that phone you can't you know, seem, to, seem to quit. Um, and so much else. We need to tell a new story about government and public action in America and not be ashamed of government because that is, government is us. And it's the only fighting chance we have against those who, who cling to power, the few who cling to power, and, and, and use it to advance their own interests instead of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. And uh, uh, Glenn, thanks very much for that call. Let's go to Watts in Macomb Township, uh, an area that we are kind of talking about today. Watts, welcome yeah, to the today. Hey. Yeah, it's Watts with an S. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hi, Stephen and guest. Uh, wow, uh, great points uh, 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 from your guest. Are you guys familiar with DemocraticAutopsy.com? I highly recommend it. Hmm. I heard a fellow from that. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so. the, the uh, I was tempted. I was torn during the election. I was tempted. Um, well, I, I thought there was a lot of horrendous things about Trump. But I was also tempted by Trump. He stood up for the downtrodden uh, workers uh, that were hit hard from uh, NAFTA and the CHICOM deals, mm-hmm. the uh, horrible communist trade uh, deals that shipped off so many good and great jobs to Mexico and communist China. And I myself was involved with that. After 75 years of profit and record profits, they closed down uh, my manufacturing uh, place wow. where I worked, and white and black people and all people, including immigrants and uh, uh, re-entered uh, civilians uh, were affected, and they just shut the doors. They kept the warehouse open, so um, eventually, after many years of unemployment, 
I did get back for a while, and uh, I saw these products that we once made that were made uh, shipped back to the U.S., and we restock them, and they came from Mexico wow. and um, Vietnam. So it was really bizarre and really so bad. So and the tax base was really hit, and Warren and all these other places and mm-hmm. na- neighborhoods really went down. Yeah. So, Watts, I wonder if you feel like electing Donald Trump has given you some some hope that that will change. Do you feel like he's delivering for you and your community? Okay, well, I said I was tempted to vote for him. <laughs> you didn't say you did, I, right? <laughs> I, I Actually, I didn't. Okay. okay. I, I could almost flip a, a coin, but uh, I love what he said about the horrible trade deals, and I can relate to that. And look, Hillary didn't even go to Wisconsin. She took that vote, the blue-collar vote, for granted. And he worked his butt off. You have to, even if you hate him, look what he did. I mean, he was campaigning left and right. She was yeah. with the millionaires and billionaires. He so. came here. Yeah. Watts, I, I really appreciate the call and, and you. you're Thank sharing you your much. perspective. Anand, we have about a minute left, but but I want to get you to react to what Watts is saying and, and give us kind of a, a closing thought uh, for for how we how we rethink the way we approach these these uh, these issues. Let me propose uh, something bold. Um, Michigan was a defining hub of the 20th century, of the rise of industrial capitalism, um, of the creation of great wealth. And, and then it, in many ways, rode the, the collapse of of that ideology and the excesses of that of that ideology and i believe we are at a new moment now i believe we're at a pivot point between a second gilded age that we've been living in that's worked for billionaires and not others um, and a a new age of reform that i that i believe is coming and and it would be amazing if michigan or the people of michigan were at the forefront of that we need to rethink what capitalism is and how it works and what kind of capitalism we want and who it works for. We need to rethink government. We need to rethink an economy, a moral economy that works for most of us. And I think there's nowhere better than Michigan for that, for that grassroots organizing work to really rethink those things uh, to get started. Okay. Anand Girdadas, journalist and author of the book Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It was really great to talk with you about this subject here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Up next, national TV and radio host Michael Smirkanish is going to be in town this weekend for a talk about politics, our public discourse, and the media's role in partisan divisions. We're going to give away some tickets for the talk, and here is conversation with producer Jake Neer. That's next. Stay tuned on Detroit Today.